page 878 in the uh, Bibles going around. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. The ushers will uh, give you one. Revelation 21, the first eight verses, and then we move down to verse 22 and go through to chapter 22, verse 7. Final episode in God's plan of salvation and the ushering in of eternity. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. Down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the night, the light of the lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign for ever and ever. Then the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy in this book. Try that again. Does anyone know 
the second last sentence. Don't look at your Bibles, that's one of the few times I'm going to say this. The second last sentence in the whole of Scripture before it closes for good. Anyone know it? Oh, in Greek as well. That's just (laughs) excelling. That's right. Come, Lord Jesus. One of the final notes, or the final note in many ways, that rings out is this cry. Come, Lord Jesus. What do you think of the idea of Jesus coming back? If you're not a Christian um, and you're here today, it might sound a little bit strange to you. Maybe you haven't heard that the Christian understanding of of the world is that Jesus is going to come back again and change things here forever. He's going to judge what's not good and get rid of it and he's going to judge what is good and, and keep it forever, perfect it. If you are a Christian though, what do you think of this idea? What do you think about Jesus coming back? See, as I said to the kids, I remember when I was younger, well, at that point actually, more like a teenager, I was thinking that I didn't really want Jesus to come back actually. I felt like I had all of my life ahead of me and I sort of hoped that he'd just wait for a bit until I'd got out there and and experienced a bit more of the world and of life. You know, I wanted to get married first. I wanted to have sex first. I wanted to travel. I wanted to have kids And when my life was practically over and I was a boring 30-year-old or something like that, (laughs) then Jesus could come back. And all the things that I wanted to experience are good things. But for me to think that they could somehow compare to Jesus coming back was not just wildly ignorant of me, but a fair bit offensive to God as well. See, how selfish of me to think, to not think of those who are suffering. I might have had life relatively easy, but what about everyone else? Or what about my brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters in the world, who are being persecuted for their faith? You know, they're crying out, come Lord Jesus, come. And I'm adding in there, but just not yet, just wait till I've seen Europe. So what did this say about the place that I gave God in my life? If I'd prefer to have the good things that God had made over having Jesus himself with me. There's no doubt that I was in danger of making these good things into God's substitutes, into idols. Now, all of what I just said then is probably true. I'm pretty sure I was a selfish 18-year-old and I'm pretty sure that God was showing me that I needed him to be number one. But having those things pointed out to me like that was never going to make my heart sing, come Lord Jesus. Think about the best that it could achieve. Stephen, stop being so selfish. Stop idolizing the good things that God has made. And what's my heart going to say in response? Fine, come Lord Jesus. See, what is it that's going to make our hearts genuinely cry? Come Lord Jesus. You know, that as your plane is about to land in Paris and you're about to see Europe for the first time, that if you were somehow given the choice to have Jesus come right now or after your trip, that without even having to think about it, your heart would cry, now. Or if after your, your wedding, you've waited to be faithful to this one person and you arrive at your honeymoon destination, and if you somehow had the choice of Jesus arriving right then, that you would say, of course, now. Or as your baby is born and you're about to meet them for the first time. Or whatever good situation that you could possibly imagine 
What's going to make our hearts fully see that the joy, the thrill, the euphoria of all these good things just can't compare to Jesus coming? I would say nothing. Nothing is going to fully prepare our hearts to see just how good it's going to be. No matter how much we prepare ourselves, when Jesus returns, we're still going to be overwhelmed with how much better it is than we had ever imagined. The best that we can do is just catch a glimpse of what's in store for this world when Jesus returns. But it's as we keep that glimpse before us, as we get a taste of what's coming, it's only then that our hearts will genuinely respond, Come Lord Jesus with every prayer, with every decision, in the bad times, but even in the good times. Today, we get to catch a glimpse of what it's going to be like. At different points over this last year, we've been looking at 10 pop-up moments in the story of the Bible. 10 standout moments that you've got to understand if you're going to understand the Bible. And today, we come to the final moment, and it's a moment that's still to come in the future. We see today's pop-up moment in the book of Revelation. As the book closes, God lets John, one of the apostles, catch a glimpse of the spectacular end of the story. So let's have a closer look at what John saw. Look at verse 1 in chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Here's John's first glimpse of where it's all going. And what does he see? He sees something new. John stands on a a new earth, looking up at a, a new sky. Now, I don't think this necessarily means that the substance of this earth and heaven will disappear. And we'll be in a a different kind of world, you know, where dirt is milo and clouds are marshmallows or something like that. I don't think that's necessarily what it's saying. The newness John is talking about may not be the physical world at all. So you've got to be really careful how literally we interpret this picture. This is a mistake that people always make with Revelation. So, for example, because we read that the sea was no more, does that mean there are no oceans in heaven, you know, and the, the surfers who are sitting here are like, no way, man, not cool. <laughs> that would be an example of, of forgetting that this is a picture, it's a metaphor. And so from a biblical perspective, the, the sea is seen as chaos and danger. And so what this picture is telling us, this metaphor, is that there's no danger, there's no chaos in heaven. We actually get to see the heart of what's new in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, we get to hear it from God himself, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The newness of the end is that God will now dwell with his people. Does that sound new to you? I mean, maybe you're thinking, didn't God dwell with his people in the tabernacle and then, and then the temple? That was pop-up moment number four, by the way. 
But if you remember, the tabernacle, it wasn't exactly an open door to God, was it? See, the tabernacle sent mixed messages. It said God is here right in in the midst of his people. And at the same time, it said, so keep away. Don't get too close. Only one person, the high priest, and only once a year, only after making certain sacrifices, could actually go into God's presence. And even then, if he got things wrong, he could die. To draw near to God was a fearful thing. The tabernacle and the temple, they were just shadows pointing to a reality to come. But then you might be thinking, well, wasn't God dwelling amongst us in Jesus, coming down to earth? And that was pop-up moment number seven. And he did, of course. John himself wrote in his other book these words. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus even calls himself the temple. And yet this was only a temporary thing, like a taste of the end. And even in Jesus, though God dwells with his people, they didn't see his full glory revealed. It's like the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels um, Sing says, there's this line, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Even in Jesus, while here on earth, God was veiled to us. And at the transfiguration, that veil was lifted for just a moment. But still, there's a time to come when God will fully dwell with his people. Okay, but then you might be thinking, but what about the Holy Spirit? Doesn't God dwell among his people by his Holy Spirit? And that was pop-up moment number nine last week. And the answer again is, yes, he does. And yet, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called a down payment, a deposit of a greater inheritance that's still to come. In other words, we belong to an even greater reality that's still in the future. What the tabernacle, the temple, the incarnation, and even the gift of the Holy Spirit are all pointing to is that something really is absolutely new about this picture we're looking at today. And John gets to catch just a glimpse of it. And what's new is that God himself will live with us face to face for all eternity. Not veiled from us, not behind a curtain. We will exist unafraid side by side with God as sons and daughters. Now, like I said to the kids before, when I was a kid, I thought heaven would be great because I thought I'd be able to do whatever I liked, like fly and things like that. And often when you hear people talking about heaven... They focus on what they'll be able to do or um, what it will be like for them. But as they're talking, you notice that there's something missing from the picture. Jesus. See, what makes heaven so great is that God will dwell with us. We'll be with Jesus. And so if you don't think Jesus is great, of course, then you're not going to think heaven is great. The end point of this story that we've been looking at, of the whole Bible of this whole world, is not a me-sort-of-centred place. It's a Jesus-centred place. But when it's Jesus that you want and you get Jesus, you also get the source of every good thing. From Jesus flows to us everything that's good. And we get to see what that looks like. We get to see what it will look like to dwell with God. And so the next thing to see is that in this new reality... 
God will wipe out the old. Have a look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We can miss the power of what's being offered to us here. If you don't have tears in your eyes, you don't really feel the need for them to be wiped away. If you haven't experienced the death of someone close, then the significance of the passing away of death can be lost on you. If you don't live day by day in pain, then it's harder to feel the, the thrill of the promise of this liberation. You know, we're about to celebrate Australia Day. And this truly is an amazing country. In some ways, it's almost like we live in an unreality. We live in such abundance where we always have food. We even have the luxury of, of sedatizing death and hiding it away. We don't even have to kill our own food. Now, not all countries are like that, of course. Uh, I remember going to, friend, uh, going to lunch with my friend who's from Colombia. And we went to one of his friend's place who was also from Colombia. And while we're eating lunch, he asked her, have you ever seen someone like a dead body on the street in Colombia? And she said, no. And then they both burst out laughing. And I was kind of sitting there lost going, what's the joke? And when they saw my confused look, my friend explained to me, of course she's seen dead people on the street in Colombia. Everybody has. We have no idea what the rest of this world is like. But even here, of course, we can't completely hide from the pain and the sadness and the death. I've only been here a year now to this day. And yet already I've seen some of the really sad and the really hard things that many of you have had to bear. Even if you're young here today, still in your teens or early 20s, and your life's been pretty smooth so far, it doesn't mean you won't experience really hard and really sad things sometime soon. I lost my mum when I was at uni. Just a few weeks ago, I was speaking to a girl who has had to quit uni and had to quit work and can't work. She feels like her life is just paused on hold because she has chronic fatigue. She can barely even get to church. And what makes it really hard is that she says people just don't get it. They think, why don't you just go and sleep and feel better? This week, just a couple of days ago, I spoke to a friend whose wife's just been diagnosed with MS. Now, similar things are going to happen to some of us. Some of us won't be able to have kids who want to. Some of us will lose kids. Some of us will have a partner walk out on us. Some of us will lose a partner young. Some of us are going to face depression or unemployment or sickness and I shudder to think what else. And when you do experience these things, and I know that some of you are experiencing them right now, it makes you long all the more intensely for that time when God announces these words. The old order of things has passed away. I am making everything new. It is done. Aren't they some of the sweetest words in the Bible that you'll ever hear? The old is done away with. The end is new. God will dwell with his people. If you've had even the slightest taste of the mess of this world, this glimpse of what's to come just makes your heart sing, Come, Lord Jesus. 
But it's worth asking at this point, who exactly does this future belong to? And for that, we see in verse 7. It says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. When you read these words, do you feel more like the victorious person or more like the cowardly person? Is the victorious person the one who rides into heaven on their own strength, victorious in their own effort? Well, in the book of Revelation, and the whole story of the Bible, in fact, the person who is victorious is always the one who endures in faith. The one who keeps on trusting Jesus. The victorious person is contrasted with the unbelieving person, the faithless person, the the one who doesn't trust in Jesus, who either gave up or never trusted in Jesus. And you can see that part of being unbelieving is giving up the fight against all of those things that we we read in verse 8. This great future belongs to those who keep trusting in Jesus. But the future of those who don't trust in Jesus is this picture of the second death. Hell is seen as more than just ridiculous by most of our friends these days. It's actually seen as immoral. It's immoral to even believe in such a place. It's immoral because it's so barbaric that just because someone believes something different to us that we could think that they're going to hell. And it's seen as trying to manipulate people trying to scare them into behaving a certain way or believing a certain thing. Now, hell is horrible. There's no doubt about that. There's something wrong with anyone who likes the idea of hell. But it's not ridiculous or immoral because hell is actually getting what you want. Those who want Jesus, well, they get what they want. Those who don't want to dwell with Jesus, well, they also get what they want. People who don't want to dwell with Jesus will not be forced to. Does this picture of hell scare you? Does it scare you that you might be the faithless, the the unbelieving, the cowardly, the the sexually immoral? We should find it scary, but like I said last week, guilt and fear that drives you to try to perform better, that's useless. The best that guilt and fear can do for you is drive you to Jesus. The one who died to take our judgment for us. The one who clothes us in his perfect record. The one who at the cross cried, it is finished. So that we could be there on that day when God cries, it is done. Trusting in Jesus means that we can drop our guilt and our fear forever. You see, Christians can never rightly be called liars or the sexually immoral. Because even though we we have times when we lie or times when we are sexually immoral, we are those who turn away from those things and repent. We don't justify them. We don't dwell in them or delight in them. We renounce them. They're not who we are. 
Like I said last week, it's, it's like there's two movies playing at the same time. And sometimes we get caught up in the old one. But because of Jesus, we belong to the new one. Well, we've seen that the end will be new because we will dwell with God and the old will pass away. And we've seen that those who keep looking to Jesus will inherit this. The next thing to see about the end is that the end will be a city. How do you feel about that? I uh, came from Armadale before here, as you know, and it's a pretty small kind of country town. So lots of people that I knew there kind of um, didn't really get this picture particularly well and didn't really like it. You know, the idea of driving in a city just about sent them into a panic attack. The picture just fell flat. But like I said before, we need to watch out that we don't get tripped up by the picture language. What exactly is the city in this picture? Well, you've got to look at Revelation 21 verse 9. One of the angels says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. See, what is the city? It's Jerusalem, and and back in 21 verse 2, it's the new Jerusalem, not the new Sydney or the new New York. But actually, we've got to look even closer if we're going to understand this glimpse of what's to come. See, what is this city? It's the bride. The bride is the picture for the people of God. So the city is literally the people of God. We're not going to live in the city We are the city. And whether heaven will literally be a city or not, I've got no idea. What's more important to ask is what the picture tells us about what's to come. And what it tells us is this. The end will be a beautiful, perfect community of people. See, not only will people dwell with God, but we will dwell with each other without sin. Just think of what that means. No sin. It means no crime, no greed, no poverty, no loneliness, no saying goodbye to people. It means beautiful, perfect community forever. If you have any doubts about the city being a metaphor, you just got to look at this next bit where we see that the measurements of the city show that it's beyond doubt just a picture because it's a giant cube as high as it is wide. And when you calculate how wide it is and how high it is, it's 2,225 kilometres. It's enormous. It would, it would, if it was a literal city, it would actually be out in, um, beyond our atmosphere of Earth and way past the Hubble Space Station. The city is massive. And what this picture tells us is that there's plenty of room for all God's people. The walls give the idea of complete security. Nothing can threaten this city from outside or within. And this city is a a picture for breathtaking beauty and extravagance with gold streets and pearl gates. But we can't just stop at the picture of the city. There's something else we've got to see. And so finally, we need to see that the end will be like the Garden of Eden. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. When humanity rebelled against God, they were cast out from the Garden of 
Eden and from the tree of life. And since then, we've desperately chased after the beauty and the innocence and the deep peace of the Garden of Eden. You know, we've chased after it with all sorts of things, whether with relationships, even with science, with pleasure, even with religion, trying to get close to nature, art. But nothing has ever brought us even close to coming back to that reality. You see this in ads, you know, often the you see the, the concept of trying to recapture Eden. So, you know, you use this shampoo and you'll regain paradise or, you know, buy this car and you'll recapture that closeness to nature or um, eat this yogurt and birds will sort of land on you. Well, John sees that in the end, humanity will once more have free access to the tree of life. There's um, a Christian book about... Um, the end of, um, of this world, about this topic that we're looking at today. And it's called, In the End, The Beginning. It's a very clever title. But the thing to get is that the end is more than the beginning. Because we're not just granted access to the Garden of Eden again. The end is pictured as Eden arriving at where it was always intended to go. The end is pictured as the Garden City, even better than Eden. Now, there's so much more that we could look at in this passage. It's really hard to know when to stop, but it's time for us to wrap it up. Even if we had hours and and days, we could just keep looking at stuff here. And even then, it's just a glimpse of what's to come. Does it excite you? As you look at the end, doesn't it make you want Jesus to come back? Even if you're not a Christian. Even if you thought... You'd never have the interest, any interest of of living with Jesus, dwelling with Jesus. Doesn't this glimpse make you question that? See, I look at this and I reckon I could throw away every other hope and dream just for the chance of of standing there at the end. But the thing is, we don't have just a chance to be there. We have complete assurance of being there if we just endure in faith, if we just keep on trusting Jesus to the end. If you're not sure that you're going to be there, talk to me today. Don't let anything hold you back from this. Having seen where everything is is heading, could you imagine not being there yourself? Or could you imagine keeping this to yourself? See, I want to be there with my wife. I want to run up to the city with my kids. I want to run through the gates of heaven laughing with all of you guys. And I want to stand face to face with Jesus, with people I haven't even met yet. People in the northeast of Adelaide who don't even know Jesus yet. There's only one really good reason to not want Jesus to come back immediately. And that's the very reason why he does wait. The one valid reason is because we want to see more people there on that final day. Jesus was willing to die to bring us to the new Jerusalem. For the joy of of what we've just caught a glimpse of, Jesus was willing to face the pain, the humiliation and and the suffering of the cross. For the joy of what's to come, what are you willing to face? Who are you going to point to Jesus? We're in this story. It's real. 
And there's no greater story that we could ever be a part of. Join with me as I pray that God will help us to play our part in it. Father, we cry in our hearts, come Lord Jesus. And yet we ask you to be at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, to cry all the more, come Lord Jesus. Help us to see reality the way you do, that this world is tainted and that Jesus is coming to restore it. Lord, keep this glimpse of just how great it will be to dwell with him before our eyes. And Lord, help it to motivate us to want to be a part of this story and Lord, to want to call our kids, our workmates, our family, people we don't even know, to want to be there on that day too, rejoicing forever with Jesus and enjoying him and every good thing that he brings us. Lord, help us in the struggles of this life and especially, Lord, help us in the good things of this life that we have so abundantly here in Australia, not to get distracted from this vision that you gave John of what's to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.